0: Transparency is essential to teamwork, performance, and accountability. Be no different than being a sports team, right? You know, get the right players on the field in the right roles. If you're short a player on a key position, you're not gonna win. You gotta field the team. Energizing with the right culture, the right process to give and receive the ball. And you can do those basic things, you have a chance to really win and win not only one season, but over time. If you're missing any of those elements, you can preach accountability. You can try to do performance tracking. You can throw a bunch of incentives on top. It's going to backfire.
1: So the big question is this, how do small business owners like us grow our leadership, develop our teams, and scale our business in a way that allows us to get our products and services out to the world, yet still remain profitable? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Bradley Hamner, and this is the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Before we get into today's episode, did you know that Club Capital is the largest accounting and advisory firm for insurance agency owners in the country, providing monthly accounting, CFO services, and tax preparation? Check them out at club.capital. Welcome to another episode of the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. My name is Bradley Hamner, your host. On today's podcast, we have Lex Sisney. He is the organizational physics founder and head coach. He's a business scaling expert and a wizard at organizational structure. And design. He works with CEOs and leadership teams of expansion stage companies who are committed to growing their business without compromising their values. The word scaling gets thrown around a lot and sometimes maybe too loosely. I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode. I really love talking about things like organizational infrastructure to be able to build a company to design for scale And Lex works with big companies, typically companies doing 15, 20 million to 30 million. And we talk about it on the episode where there are things that a company there is doing that maybe a company doing 300 million shouldn't be what the things a company at 30 million are doing. But there are always threads that you can pull. Specifically, listen to some of the comments that we discuss around core values in particular. All right. I think you're going to get a lot of this episode. Without further ado, here's my podcast with Lex Sisney. Ambition is the first step towards success. It's time to level up your agency and Coach P Consulting will help you do just that by using the same strategies he used to sell over 700 life insurance policies in 2021 alone. Now, this is not your regular one and done type coaching. You'll get personalized coaching two days a week, every week of the month, and you'll get a live look behind the scenes of his team training and an office that's performing at the highest level. There's a reason Coach P Consulting is the fastest growing coaching company for insurance agency owners in the country. Coach P will train your team alongside his own and show you the exact steps they're taking to achieve chairman circle, exotic travel, and multi-line presence club, and be one of the few agents to be selected to have a third office. So whether your goal is to be at the top of your local market or amongst the best in the country, this training will give you the strategies and the tactics to get there. For just $250 a month, you'll get high-level coaching each week from someone who is already getting it done at that level, and his strategies work, and it's time to put them to work for you. Sign up at coachpeakconsulting.com and get your first full month for free when you mention the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Lex Sisney, welcome to the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, as I said to you before we hit record, I really, truly am excited about this. I get excited about a lot of podcast guests, but your topic today is something that I personally really geek out on. And so we're going to keep this to our normal length, but I think you and I could have chat for three hours if we had enough time, but I want you to get to your glass of wine in Italy this evening. Mm-hmm. But before we do get into any of those things, for people that are not familiar with your work, can you kind of take us back? We always start with background and origin
0: story. Sure. So the origin for my work today goes back to my early 30s and I was an entrepreneur and I started and was the default CEO for one of the country's fastest growing technology companies at the time. And my approach to leadership then was, hey, if I focus on culture and hiring great people, everything will kind of take care of itself, right? That was true into until a certain ceiling of complexity. And then I really found the limitations of my current mental models that I was bringing to bear. And I really struggled under hyper growth. So for those who maybe not have experienced it, one of the benefits of a really fast growing situation is you get real-time feedback about what works and what doesn't. So just imagine me in the early 30s, I'm taking an idea from here and an idea from here, and I'm trying all this stuff and I'm deploying it. And it's just a disaster. The business is still growing, but inside it's just chaos, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I suffered enough where I finally broke down and asked for help. And I found a scaling coach, a brilliant guy uh, named Sunil Davidi, who's from the Adesis Institute. And Adesis is kind of world-renowned in understanding life cycle theory. And they had helped transform companies like Porsche, Bank of America, Married Hotels in the 80s when they were kind of going through turbulent growth years. And he really fundamentally taught me to think differently. And what I was doing wrong is I was applying the right tactics at the wrong stage. Let's imagine i had a 3 year old child and i was trying to parent them like they were 13 i skipped a bunch of steps and that's what i was doing unconsciously because i just didn't have the model so with a new way of thinking what i saw was i saw things differently therefore i acted differently and so did my team and that company went on to be the world's largest of its type that experience of struggling new model thinking differently acting differently seeing new results was really inspiring to me and i went off on a quest to try to find new methods models that that would be universally true, independent of time, location, culture, and that gave birth to organizational physics, ultimately, which is a way it's kind of a systems thinking approach or a methodology to build your business, lead your team, have more success and satisfaction. And that all ties into first principles.
1: All right. So I've got just in that, I have so many questions that I want to dive into. Here's the very first one that I wanted to start our conversation with. What are the levels? And I think in business, we use revenue as a way to be able to keep score. We realize that top line revenue is not everything. I understand that there's a lot of different ways to be able to measure success, but revenue at least is a benchmark to be able to say, what are the levels that you say? Okay, look, there's this first zero to X, and then there's X to X, and then there's this, this, because I think that what you mentioned there has been so true for myself to say wait a minute i was trying to take what someone was doing at 5 million and apply that to where my business was at 500,000 and it wasn't even yeah. working and let yep. alone 50 million
0: right yeah so let's just reinforce that you got to manage things to their life cycle stage just like i said don't parent a 3-year-old like they're 13 or vice versa right So really important, you recognize the stage. And as you're saying, revenue growth can be an indicator, but it's really not that valuable. I'll answer your question and speak to it in generalities. And it's changing, thanks inflation. Okay, But if you kind of said startup is zero to 15 million in annual recurring revenue, early stage scale up, it's kind of maybe in the 15 to 150 range and Mm -hmm. true scale up probably north of 150 million. For some companies, those are just business units, right? Business lines. But you just, you'll just you notice that complexity increases. Your old approaches no longer seem to work. They've reached the limits of complexity. And so you got to step back, look at the situation with fresh eyes, and try to come up with those new approaches that achieve the simplicity on the other side of complexity. That's kind of what I do in my work. I specialize in the 30 mil to 300 mil range of companies and they have a leadership team and they're still typically very what they want to be innovative. They have been innovative, but they're finding this, it's not easy like it used to be. And we we know we need to change, Mm -hmm. but we want to sacrifice our entrepreneurial DNA or our core values. So what do we do? How do we do it? All right.
1: So that leads me into my next question of ceiling of complexity. You kind of mentioned that. So regardless of the business size, here's my question. Do you build the foundations? Do you build the infrastructure of the company to then a certain point? And let's just use an example. Let's say 10 million, right? It's a true startup and it's up to 10 million. Mm-hmm. And then you say, okay, for us to go from 10 to 30 million, what we need to do, the foundation's got to change, the structure's got to change. Okay. Or, and then you get to 10, and you hit that sticking point and then you have to kind of redo it and then uh-huh. go to 30. Okay. Or do you say, ultimately, we are wanting to be able to scale to nine figures to get to 100. So therefore, we're going to build the infrastructure, the foundation to be able to get there now. Do you see that balance? Which one comes first? It's a little bit of chicken in the egg. A little. It is. And as a
0: general rule of thumb, no, you should not try to build the infrastructure at a sub $10 million company. Don't try to design your way into a hundred million dollar business. You actually don't want that in the startup mode. You want a tremendous amount of flexibility. Mm-hmm. You want to design around people. It's a tremendous amount of grit, gut, gumption, luck. You know, Mark Andreessen said it really well. There's two stages to every company there are pre product market fit problems and then post product market fit problems. Most of your listeners are in the insurance industry, right? It's kind of a market that's certainly doing some innovation, but the model is kind of known, right? But just imagine though you're not in that industry, it's a lot of unknowns. You don't want a heavy infrastructure, of course, because it'll prevent you from adapting quickly to mm. get product market fit. And so what again, just manage to the stage, parent your three-year-old like they're three, and then parent them appropriately at that stage. And then you got to change your parenting style. Don't pre-attempt to or attempt to change your parenting style too early.
1: Okay. As an organization grows in revenue, but specifically in management layers, mm-hmm. meaning obviously people. And so maybe when a company hits their first 10, they start to think about their first level of management because the founder entrepreneur can't sure. have everybody having direct reports. And then you just scale that up to 100, hundred, two hundred, and thousand people. I would think and have seen myself, but certainly not at the level that you have, Lex, the difficulty of cascading communication specifically around vision. How do you do that well?
0: Yeah, the secret here is to, I believe that the CEO cannot delegate strategic communications, which includes vision, includes values, includes who we are, why we exist, even what's the state of the world out there and what are we doing about it? You can't delegate it. You can't delegate it to your culture and talent team. You can't delegate it to your head of marketing. You got to own it. And the CEOs that I've seen are best at that. They have developed a habit of weekly, consistent, strategic comms from them to the whole ecosystem. Employees, customers, partners. And it tends to follow a little bit of, I don't want to say it's formulaic, but they're hitting the highlights. Okay, what's the good news? How are we tracking towards our goals? What's an anecdote or a story from the field? And what needs to happen is you got to think about it. You can't rely on your middle management layer to communicate. Mm -hmm. Some will be really good communicators. Okay. But a large percentage won't be, or they won't be on message. Okay. Mm -hmm. So as a leader of the company, you got to think about how do I communicate and bypass all those layers? How do I communicate directly? So it could be email, could be video. I'm having a lot of CEO clients embrace video as their weekly kind of conduit for communication. Really important and unrecognized how valuable and important it is for the CEO to embrace that. And a lot of CEOs at first who I I coach to do this will be like, is anyone going to watch? Does anybody freaking care? How do I know what's working? Well, just pilot it, get a baseline, measure, ask for feedback. But that regular ritual of communication, strategic comms from the head down, by the way, if the head is clear and committed, the body tends to follow. If the head is absent, <laughs> the body tends to follow. So you got to own that, I believe, as a leader.
1: Yeah. So basically, if you rely to go down to your C-suite and then they pass it down to their managers, it's going to get diluted. It just gets diluted as opposed to the CEO being able to communicate it across the board to everyone yeah. that way. it's they, they know the message is getting the way that they want it delivered. Okay. So okay. that's good. That makes sense
0: track how many Mm -hmm. opens, follow up. Yeah, just think about all the communication tools we have right at our fingertips, right? So one thing though that
1: is impossible at that scale is then accountability. Mm -hmm. And so then that comes down to, okay, well, the CEOs clearly can't hold everybody accountable. And so accountability gets thrown around quite a bit. But how do you do that at scale? Because there's this idea, and I've heard some other people talk about this, as the organization is kind of growing, what ends up happening is it almost kind of slows to a halt, even though it's growing, because details around accountability and expectations
0: begin to kind of get watered down. Yeah. So if you think about it like this, in my work, I teach a concept, all right, it's called manage the mass or gather the mass. And it's just this recognition that every system, every individual has resistance to change or an inertia. So- A company tends to do what it's been doing unless there's something happens to it, right? Some force of change is applied. And as a leader, you got to design your subsystems to get your business to do what you want it to do, you know, do the right thing, even without your direct involvement. Okay. So there's four basic levers you have to work with and incentives isn't one of them. Okay. Incentives seems obvious, but if you only are relying on incentives, you're going to get yourself into a lot of problems because there'll be perverse incentives or people do the right thing to get the incentive, but it's not the right thing for the business. They'll feel like they don't have any autonomy and authority over what they need to do. So what's the point, right? Your incentive Mm -hmm. program can be helpful, but it's not really the lever. It's a subset of the lever. The real levers
1: are culture. Go ahead. I just want to double tap on that and say that it tends to be the very first place that we go to. How do we just throw money at the problem, right? The very first place. And you're saying
0: like, that's not even one of the levers to go to at all. No. In fact, if you take these other, other approaches I'm going to lay out, then you can add a very simple, transparent, easy to manage incentive program that helps you, doesn't hinder you. If, mm-hmm. if you don't, things I'm going to say and you deploy an incentive program, it's going to end up, you're going to want to pull your hair out because it's not creating the results. It's actually mm-hmm. a lot of money to manage it. All right. So the levers you do have are your culture, which is shared vision and values. And that has to be designed and reinforced from the head down. And the culture... Don't underestimate a really powerful, really reinforced culture does to bring forward accountability and transparency and trust and teamwork. Another one is who you hire, right? Okay, so now those two things sound very obvious. In fact, go ask a thousand business people, what's the secret to business success? And they'll go, well, you got to have a good strategy. You got to have a great culture. You got to have great people. Next. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. yeah,
1: Right?
0: Okay, but underneath the surface, there's a couple of levers that are underutilized that with awareness you can lever and they actually create the most leverage for change. One is structure. Structure is not the org chart. Structure is the design of the business. And then process. And process is a legacy, bureaucratic, stifling thing. Process is what brings the organization alive, right? It's how we gather data, make decisions and get stuff done. You can kind of think at a level deeper and say, okay, well, if this is the strategy, what's the structure I need to drive it forward? Independently Mm -hmm. of people. And there's some, I'll call them rules or laws there that you don't want to design the wrong structure for the strategy or you're not going to succeed. That's good. And then how I energize accountability in a company is through the CEO and a leadership team with very vividly clear roles in the structure with very few conflicting accountabilities. So the easiest thing in the world is to give somebody conflicting accountabilities and they say, I can't do this. What you want me to do? Cause I got to do this over here. Just Try to strip away the competing accountabilities, get them showing up in the leadership team model, representing those ro- that role that they play, and then have a process that allows the CEO to push authority deep, mm-hmm. right? Delegate deeply, but still have visibility and control over the big strategic things. You can do all those things: culture, strong culture, get the right people in the right roles in the structure, and energize it with the right process where where we're accountable to each other, and there's just a tremendous amount of of transparency. Right. In the companies I coach, I'm actually striving for nowhere to hide. Transparency mm. is essential to teamwork, performance, and accountability. Be no different than being a sports team, right? You know, get the right players on the field in the right roles. If you're short a player on a key position, you're not gonna win. You gotta field the team. Energizing with the right culture, the right process to give and receive the ball. And you can do those basic things, you have a chance to really win and win not only one season, but over time. If you're missing any of those elements you can preach accountability, you can try to do performance tracking, you can throw a bunch of incentives on top, it's going to backfire.
1: Is that basically an example would be where you have a leadership team that does not have clear lines drawn between who owns what and then when a new initiative project does not take off the way that they wanted it to, Then everybody starts saying, well, it was him or it was her and it was him. And it was like me, you, you, me, that type of thing to where then that it's like, it wasn't my responsibility because nobody was clearly owning that task or that project or had clear responsibility
0: over that. That's basically what you see. That can be one manifestation of it. And it's really important that in a mission critical project or initiative that you have one owner, I call it the big implementer you might've heard is a single threaded owner. Hmm. And that means that they're accountable, right? We're supporting this individual on this to, to drive this initiative forward. And they have a dedicated, a pod or a team, small, that's like on this charter. And what happens is you can kind of get caught in the middle where you've got a bigger company and you're pursuing a bunch of stuff, probably too many things. And the core team's dedicated on the core business and so they don't have any time or capacity to do the new thing. But yet still, you're allocating them in that split direction, and then you're frustrated that the core business is stagnating and the new business unit or product line isn't taking off, and you should put the mirror up and go, oh, okay, I've split. I'm asking my striker to play defense. They're running around all over the place. Of course, it's not working.
1: You know what strikes me about you and your work, Lex, is when you look at your books designed to scale and how to structure the business for exponential growth, I tend to personally lean on the harder skills of business if we want to categorize them there, as opposed to maybe the softer skills. But at the same time, you do a really nice job of being able to also acknowledge the softer side of the business, such as culture and core values and the people aspect of it and hiring the right people and that sort of thing. And so... It's almost like fitting the softer skill aspect of business inside. And you really have to have both in order to be able to scale. It's not just go hire the right people and it takes care of everything else. Like my my own journey, I would get so frustrated when you go to a conference and they trot people up there who have been able to scale and they say basically what you said earlier, have some systems and processes and hire a good team. And you're like, well, no crap. I mean, I've heard this 72 times. So just yeah. your thoughts about blending those two things together.
0: Well, they both must exist. In the work that I teach, I have a little model called PSIU, which kind of gives a language to these different orientations and skills and pace and time horizon. And you need the right mix and the right places in the organization, really.
1: One thing on around vision and values, people can read a business book that talks about core values and it can be one of those examples where it can be dismissed. I just want you to just touch on the importance of actually establishing and having the cadence of communicating core values in an organization.
0: Yeah, so those are really hard things to implement and keep alive, right? Most organizations we end up with A statement of values and it's on the wall but it's not really living and breathing and it's so easy to go sideways because mary in accounting well she's clearly never living by the values she's been here for six years and she just makes me want to pull my hair out right so everybody has a different orientation on that if you look at the great long-lasting cultures they've built in mechanisms at all levels of the organization to define reinforce The values and have consequences around them. And take the US military and take the Catholic Church. Okay, now these are big hierarchical organizations. Like I don't want you to take the example for that, but just that like they have very distinct cultures, right? But they actually approach cultural building in the same way. And that's that they have a set of core values, right? And around those core values, they have rituals, they have stories, and they have consequences. And so as a leader, you need to think about that. Here's my core values. I got to bring these alive somehow. Therefore, I need rituals, which is how we live and breathe and interact those values in real time. Stories, because humans live and learn through stories, right? And so you got to cascade values through storytelling. And one example would be sharing an anecdote of what Frank and manufacturing did to save the day to express our value of tenacity. Oh, okay, that's what we're looking for, right? (laughs) Rituals would be, hey, Frank, here's the night out on the town. Or rituals could be how we greet each other, how we start our meetings, how we end our meetings, hmm. things like that, right? And then consequences are somebody's not living in to the values, they got to go. And also those who live to the values and are really talented, they we want to up-level and celebrate and reinforce. So and if any of those elements are missing, you're not going to have a vibrant culture. Now, notice though most of the modern approach to building culture is around entitlements. Ping pong and free meals and spa days and work from home. Just notice, though, that every entitlement begets more entitlement. You know, doesn't lead to higher performance. It might make you feel good, like you're doing these nice things, but it doesn't create performance. It just creates a sense of entitlement. And so you got to step back from what might be popular and really think about, OK, the purpose of this business is this. I need a culture system to empower that, right, to make that happen. And it's got to have those elements I mentioned, core values. Rituals, stories, consequences. The rituals,
1: stories, and consequences inside of the core values, that is one thing that I'm actually going to go back into what we call it core four, having four core values. And we gave a little paragraph speech about kind of what it is, almost a defining of what the core value is as an example. And I've got a little video that does a deeper dive. But one thing that I have not done, and that is a great example, is to tell a story around the core value. And I'm thinking about immediately this afternoon, maybe shooting a video for each one of those to actually tell a story because I have stories around each one of them as opposed yeah. to just defining
0: the core value. So that's, that's really, great. really good. Yeah, stories are really powerful. And share stories of people expressing your desired core values in action, right? Yes. Yeah, so mm-hmm. stories, because the negative stories will transfer immediately, right? And I'll go all around the office, virtual or in person, like, oh, so-and-so did this, right? Again, the people cannot design it against it. Cultures will naturally deteriorate under their own inertia, under their own weight. Yeah, we could go on about that because what you choose as your core
1: value is going to dictate so much about how the organization operates. If you go off speed as king as a core value, well, then you're probably going to make some mistakes along the way. But so what? Because that's our core value is speed. But yeah. then if it's like you're all about doing things first class experience, it's kind of like, well, you know what? forward-facing mistakes are not nearly as accepted as those things. So I think that's incredibly important. I want to ask you around metrics. We haven't talked about measuring numbers, et cetera. So I'm going to switch back over to kind of the hard skill things. What do you see as, this goes back to your comment earlier about doing the right things at the right time, okay? So when it comes to metrics and numbers and tracking, What are the things that a company that's on the early stage would be needing to have? I mean, clearly they're going to have numbers and data as opposed to a company that's on the upper end.
0: So interesting question, because what a small company should be tracking and what a large company should be tracking are fundamentally the same. This is actually one thing that would transcend or go across different life cycle stages. The reason why is that most of the metrics your company should be tracking should be input metrics, right? Right. Inputs are those things that we have some control over. They're leading indicators. They tell us what the downstream effects are going to be. What can happen, though, when a company gets larger is they start focusing on the output metrics like revenue or nobody does this anymore. I mean, we do it unconsciously. Stock price, right? Or number of customers. Notice those are all output metrics. You're too late. That's too downstream. You're going to track them anyway for financial reporting and otherwise, but Put the emphasis on tracking your input metrics. On the leadership team dashboard metrics that I deploy, in my coaching practice, there's four categories, and we're trying to get mostly to inputs. Are we doing the right thing to build our brand and attract customers? On the operational efficiency side, is our customers happy and engaged? On the finance side, are we operating profitably? And then on the innovation side, are we doing the right things to drive forward new innovations? And on the people side, it's like, is our, how's our team and our culture, how is that looking? And there are input metrics you can track on all those. And what I'm trying to communicate here is just put your bias extremely on the inputs, not on the outputs. And that would I would hold that that's a good approach at any stage.
1: All right. Well, then that leads me to the next thing, which is your thoughts on, I'm just going to call it this because I think it's a catch-all that people would relate to. And that is a proper goal setting framework. Mm -hmm. I personally don't tend to use, um, not expressing this to others, but I tend to not use the word goals too often because it becomes, for me personally, a little too synonymous with wishes. But goal-setting framework, what have you seen that actually works as opposed to, well, that's nice in a book, but that crap doesn't work?
0: Yeah, I think it's really important that a company has a clear set of priorities, rocks, I call them strategic imperatives. These are three, maybe five initiatives that are gonna take us sustained effort, focus, three to five year time horizon. Since I was talking about life cycles earlier, right? These are things that are gonna take us from our current life cycle stage into the next stage. That to me is a minimum, right? These are our top three priorities or top three imperatives, okay? Now you can do interesting things from there, right? I can tie those, strategic imperatives into a three-year highly achievable goal. That's called a three-hag, right? That's a popular term now, a three-hag. You know, for the term a B-hag, which would be a big, hairy, audacious goal, that's more on a 10-year time frame. But just notice what's tangible for me are those strategic imperatives that are pointing towards a three to five-year time horizon. That's long enough where we got to stretch and think and we have time to execute, but short enough where it's not some distant dream, where a B-hag might seem like a distant dream. Then if you have the desire, you can, as a leader, and you want more granular tracking, then you can start to break those three to five imperatives down into annual goals. Okay. So each imperative has three to five annual goals. By the way, I mentioned that that big implementer or those single threaded owner, there needs to be one owner for each imperative. That makes sense. Yeah. And then that imperative owner has a team that's leading annual goals, right? And then you can go down further. You can get into quarterly objectives and key results. Depends how far down you want to cascade. But for me, the things come alive at that imperative level, those three to five imperatives that take three to five years to complete.
1: That resonates with me. I think personally, I can get behind a 10-year, 20, 30-type vision of me personally, kind of where I want to be. And then you kind of go back into the business. But from a business perspective, three-year vision. I like three. I have not heard that before. That's really good. That that three to five-year period of time seems to be, I mean, a period of time to where you can get meaningful things done in that period of time, but not mess around.
0: Yeah, that's right. And uh, shout out to the book, The Metronome Effect, which is where I first heard the term three hag. And I apologize. I can't think of the name of the author. I have to say that I read on Kindle and the author's name is no longer on the Top of the book. I just yeah. never thank you for the book. I'm sorry I'm not remembering the author's name.
1: Uh well your book is on my Kindle. So her <laughs> website
0: though is Three Hag Way. If you Three Hag out. Way. Okay.
1: Okay. Okay. Awesome. That's great. I enjoy reading about Cameron Harold's book, who's been on the podcast, uh Vivid Vision has been helpful around creating a three-year vision for me as well. Yeah. Okay, structurally, what is something like that you think is really imperative that we haven't touched on. We've t- touched on a lot of different things, certainly team and vision and core values, et cetera, uh, metrics, numbers,
0: scoreboards, et cetera. Let's think of something we haven't. Okay, so let's go back to that concept of not allowing for conflicting accountabilities. You can, right? But if you're in a small business with no budget and resources, you're gonna have to. Have conflicting accountabilities, but you should have a goal to work towards few conflicting accountabilities in your leadership team over time. And what I mean is that you don't want to let a leader that needs to be focused on short range results to control or overpower long range development. Let's say you're under pressure at work and you have no time to think. And so what do you do while well, you? Maybe you drink more alcohol, you give up on your fitness routine, you're not as present. Just notice in our life that short-range pressure tends to overpower long-range needs and development. And so you say to yourself, well, I just got to get over the hump here at work, and then I can take a break and think and reflect and plan for the future. So if you collapse those accountabilities, if you give your head of sales accountability for brand marketing, what's going to happen? Your brand marketing function is going to look a lot like a garage sale, a fire sale. (laughs) So be mindful, that's a conflicting accountability. Another conflicting accountability is you don't want to allow efficiency oriented functions. Efficiency means make things repeatable, scalable, high quality, right? Yeah. You don't want to allow efficiency functions to control or overpower effectiveness ones. Effectiveness is to try new stuff, break glass, make mistakes, be innovative. Yeah. Imagine you put your new product innovation function in operations. You just intuitively, our gut goes, oh, that no, never work, yeah. right? That's because efficiency overpowers effectiveness don't allow it that's a conflicting accountability if give them the right space and the structure another conflicting accountability can show up but you know I need to say this the only reason to have a structure at all by the way is not to control or consolidate it's to push authority it's to delegate it's to decentralize so it was only the leader if you're a one-man band you don't need a structure you're the one-man band you do everything okay but as you scale and you hire people you have a structure so you can push authority deep okay? you can't delegate everything. But what will happen in a lot of companies is there's a control side, right? Compliance, mm-hmm. control, accounting, quality, right? They can encroach very easily where you need more autonomy hmm. where you need more decentralization. You need more initiative, risk-taking, yeah? So you got to be mindful not to collapse conflicting accountabilities where centralized control can overpower decentralized autonomy, or you'll end up with a shell of a company, right? You won't have the company you were dreaming of building. Because it's just become a shell, because it's all compliance and bureaucracy and things like that. So those are some conflicting accountabilities to be aware of. That's really
1: good. That as you were talking, I was thinking to myself a couple of questions I had not gotten around to asking, but I want to ask a couple of things around founders, the early stage founders and CEOs. So you talked about stories earlier. I'll give you a thirty second story. So a friend of mine was in our tech space and they scaled the company He's really smart. I mean he goes. got his MBA. He was the CFO of the company, 33% equity holder, I think. And they scaled it to about a hundred million. And he told me over a beer one day, he said, you know, I knew how to manage the financials from 10 million to a hundred million. And that's when I tapped out. Mm -hmm. And it was around there that they ended up selling to private equity and they still have second bite of the Apple, et cetera. But they brought in obviously someone who knew how to take that from a hundred million to a billion or whatever, a lot more. And I guess the reason I tell that story is because I'm going to ask you a question is how often do you see this founder got the company from zero to 10 million? And then they were able to develop the skills, the mindset, the tools, et cetera, themselves. They leveled themselves up to be able to get it to 30, but boy, they're tapping out. They're tapping out, not just in terms of they're tired, but the skill set that's required to go from 30 to 300. Okay. You kind of notice It's just not there. How do you work through that? What are the things that you see, Lex?
0: Yeah, so I got fired early in my uh, CEO. I got fired up to chairman and I was really devastated by that. I really didn't like it. They took my kid away from me, you know, and I was pissed. And I think one of the reasons I got fired up is I didn't know what I didn't know. And if I was a little bit earlier on deploying a CEO coach to help me think ahead, I was in a place in my company where my company was leading me. I wasn't leading it. What I like to do in my work, what I try to do is equip the CEO with the tools, lens, model to be themselves, do what they're really good at and scale this thing as far as they want to take it. Now, I've had a couple of recent situations where the CEO took it one. Well, i think of one recent example. She's just stepping into a chairman role now. You know, she took it from 11 to 35, 40 And she's got a full-time job podcasting. So she's going to just focus on podcasting. And we promoted someone from within to be the CEO. That makes natural sense to me. So what I found is if a leader can own strategic communications, own culture, own strategy, own hiring and firing the leadership team, and deploy a smart structure and a smart, transparent leadership team model, most CEOs would be surprised how far they can take it. But if they're not willing and able to do that set of things, they know those undelegatables that just made up a new word, they shouldn't be CEO, right? They should get into another role. That's my view. So
1: it really is about their own desire to want to be able to acquire the new skills to go to the next level, to go to the next life cycle. And they may say, you know what? I'm good. Do you think it's almost like a, high school coach saying, I want to go to college, I want to coach in college, but I don't necessarily need to be in the SEC or I don't necessarily need to be an NFL coach, as an example?
0: Yeah, it's so hard to find the right metaphor here, but I would say that if we have drive, most of us humans are capable of acquiring new skills, especially if we're mature and we're developing as humans where we have good listening skills and curiosity and ability to learn, right? We mm-hmm. mm-hmm. master how to learn We can go really far. But if those things are missing, like you said, desire isn't there, the ability to really listen and learn isn't there, the just innate curiosity and humility to learn or or get help isn't there. It's going to be hard. Yeah. Well, Lex, it's been great. I've got four pages of notes. Where can people, if they want to
1: connect with you, learn more about your work, where would you point them to? I have really enjoyed your books. And so uh, point people where they should go if they want to connect with you.
0: Uh, yeah, everything that I talk about is on my website, organizationalphysics.com. dot com, and there is lots of tools there, content, assessments. Have at it. So, what's the evening look like in Sardinia? Well, you are not allowed to eat dinner in Italy before eight PM. So, <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll
1: you have get, an aper-
0: a little bit of time then. Yeah, we'll have an aperitivo and then we'll have a little dinner.
1: Awesome, Lex. Appreciate you coming on.
0: Right, thanks, Bradley. Talk to you later.
1: Okay, everyone. So there were a few things that I picked up on that episode with Lex that really, I think, are going to be impactful for me. Number one is when he talked about with core values, having consequences, rituals, and stories. I got to think through the consequences aspect of core values, but definitely having rituals around the core values and then stories. Number two, I thought whenever he was talking around metrics and measuring numbers, The focus being around input metrics. I know for me, I love to discuss output metrics a lot more. So results, outcomes, et cetera, as opposed to really challenging ourselves to put on the school board input metrics. I thought then also the three hag was was another way. So I'm going to check out the metronome effect and three hag way. I think it's going to be good. So those were some of my takeaways. Love to hear what some of your takeaways were for you. Would you love? Would you learn? What are you going to do? Big shout out to our podcast sponsors, Club Capital, Coach P, and Autopilot Recruiting. You know the importance of developing your team. Well, what if you could do it on a consistent basis twice a week with Coach P directly in his team? Go to CoachPConsulting.com. It's also important that you allow yourself to consider Outsourcing one of the most important functions of the business, and that is recruiting consistently. If you go to autopilotrecruiting.com and let Alex and the team know they heard about them on the club capital leadership podcast. They are absolutely a players in and of themselves and what they do. They work with thousands of agents at this point, helping them to be able to recruit on a consistent basis and feed you with high quality vetted people. So then you can make the decision of whether or not they should come on your team. Go to autopilotrecruiting.com. And certainly last but not least, our partners at Club Capital who make this podcast possible. Go to club.capital, book a no obligation demo and see how using your financials, getting them on a regular basis and how the Club Capital team can help you with a mindset, skill set and tool set so you can make better decisions in your business. Club Yeah. <laughs> You want to say it? You got to say it. Thank you for listening. Lead well. Okay, but say it seriously. Talk in the mic. Do it. Talk in the mic and then look in the camera. No, no, they can me to <laughs> that. Yeah.
0: Thank you for listening. Lead well.